Uh, but thank you uh, for being here today. If you had take out your Bible and turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, that is uh, right at the back of the Old Testament, just a couple of books right before the New Testament. Uh, so that'll maybe help you find that. Habakkuk chapter 1. How many times are pastors called into a situation where it is hard to give a good answer? It's those why God questions that are really the toughest. I remember just a few months after being called here to Pitts, uh, it was actually my first Easter Sunday, and the pastor right after the morning services headed out of town to see his family, and it wasn't long into my family's meal that I got that call. Sonny Yates, a longtime member of this church, went skydiving on that beautiful, clear uh, Sunday afternoon. He made a perfect landing, got up with a smile on his face, and had a massive heart attack and died almost instantly. I had to make the call to see his wife, Betty, who is now a widow in disbelief of it all. And as I drove over there, I remember praying, God, what am I going to say? I am still wet behind the ears. Am I going to make it worse? I know she is going to ask me that daunting question, why would God let this happen? In those times of emotional agony, can I tell you there are no good answers. If you've been uh, in that type of situation, you wished there was something you could say that would just make it all better. You long for a great answer that would just clear it all up. You try to have empathy, and you can't really say, I know how you feel unless you actually have lost a spouse. You could quote them, Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good. For good? Right then, it is not a good thing that her husband had died. For her, it was a devastating tragedy. So I gave her a hug as she sobbed. I prayed for her, her and her family that God would bring comfort and peace that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. That peace that goes beyond any of our understanding. I held her hand as friends came in the house one by one and the weeping would begin all over again. When she asked the why question, I gave her the most honest answer I had. I said, Miss Betty, I don't know. I don't know. Since then, Miss Betty has gone on to be with the Lord, so I'm sure now she does know. Why? Is it okay to ask God those tough questions when circumstances around us seem to be that God is silent? It may even look like God doesn't care, or even worse, that He's against us. The book of Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. It is not called minor because the message is secondary. It is only making reference to the length of the book. It's three chapters long, a total of 56 verses in all. But in those verses, we see a conversation between a holy God and a man on this very topic of why. Of why. Let me give you a brief historical background of the book before we read we know very little about the prophet Habakkuk. Scholars believe that he was 10 to 15 years older than Daniel. The book was written in 606 or 605 B.C. 
The reign of King Josiah in Judah was from 640 to 609 B.C. And Josiah was a great king. One that feared God. And under the two kings before Josiah, Manasseh and Ammon, Judah had fallen into severe corruption that included the worship of Baal. It included child sacrifices to the idol Molech while letting the temple of God basically degenerate into ruin. But then a revival was sparked and the restoration of the temple took place under the reign of King Josiah. But he died in the year 609 B.C. and the nation of Judah quickly spiraled back into its godless ways. Habakkuk is observing all of this as we hear from him in chapter 1. Would you stand as we read beginning in verse 1. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous So justice goes forth perverted. God, we come to you this morning. And there are probably people in this room who may even today be struggling with this question of why. They have prayed for a very long time for a situation and God, it seems like you are silent. God, I pray as we study through uh, this book this morning that you'll help us understand how you work, that we understand your will, and we understand more about you, God. Teach us from your word. Let us open the ears of our heart that we might listen to what you may say to us today. God, we do pray for the alleys right now, God. I know they are concerned about their newborn daughter, and I pray you just give them peace and be with the doctors as they uh, attend to her. Give them wisdom, God. Be with Pastor too. We pray for a speedy recovery for him, that you'll have him back doing the things that he enjoys, most of all serving you and serving this people here at Pitts. We thank you for him. Watch over him. Give us a good day today. Give us something from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There are three main problems that Habakkuk has to deal with here in this passage. The first one is that God seems unresponsive. If Habakkuk could have traveled ahead in time to our modern day, what we have just read, and you could read it again, could not be more accurate and timely to describe the landscape of America. As we see our country, and even more uh, accurate, this world, continue to move God out of public light. As we see the events happening on the world stage, we sit and we think, God, do you really know what's happening here? Why don't you do something? It seems like justice will not prevail and that unrighteousness will win. And that leads to the second problem. Number two, the victory seems to be going to the unrighteous. We even observe this supposed injustice in our own personal lives at times, don't we? Those parents that pray for the wayward child, they were raised in church. They went to Bible school. 
They went to Sunday school, summer camp. They know the Bible. They made a profession of faith and were baptized. But when they left home, it's like they left that behind too. You pray day after agonizing day that turns into year after agonizing year and they continue to be the prodigal son that Jesus talked about in the parable. God, when will you answer? What about the husband who prays for his wife who is diagnosed with terminal cancer? What about those parents who are given the news that their child has this debilitating disease? What about that young couple like the one I had come to me a couple of years ago? Their infant was born premature. They prayed. They asked me to pray. They asked God to heal their child, but they never brought that little one home from the hospital. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where the casket is about this big. It's difficult. It's a struggle. And when those parents look at you and say, why? Why? It doesn't seem right. And we stand there asking that question, why? What kind of response from God was Habakkuk looking for? I can think of some ideal scenarios. Here's one. God, bring about a great revival that turns Judah back to you. Boy, that's one I would love to see happen in America. Amen? Maybe he uses another great king like Josiah. God, raise up a king that will draw your people back to him. Maybe God raises up a prophet. Habakkuk could have been looking saying, God, I know one of those. I'll do it. Maybe God gives another display of his miraculous power like he did with Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember that scene? Back in 1 Kings 18, Elijah goes up against the the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. God sends down fire from heaven and all the people fell on their faces and said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I think sometimes in our mind we think that, boy, if God would put His power on display like that, then people really would believe and people would change. Habakkuk's third problem is this. God's answer seems very unfair. His answer seems very unfair. Look at at verse 5. It says, Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. When God starts to answer Habakkuk in verse 5, it sounds as if he may be sending that great revival. But what God says next would have shocked Habakkuk. God would use the Chaldeans, who would later become known as the Babylonians. 
to bring his people to their knees. Habakkuk knew the Babylonians. They were cruel and vicious. They ruled by fear and intimidation. God referred to them as bitter, dreaded, fearsome, proud, violent. Probably the worst part, their own might is their God. It would be as if God would say to the United States of America, I am going to raise up ISIS or Al-Qaeda to judge the United States. That would be a huge shock to us. But that is the kind of judgment Habakkuk, Habakkuk was told would happen to his nation. And he was fearful. But look at his response, beginning in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to, offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my, at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is still pleading his case. We hear him remind God that injustice goes beyond his very nature. Like Habakkuk needed to remind God of that. Habakkuk doesn't wait there for an answer from God. It's like he thinks, you know what, I've made a pretty good case. I've turned God's character on him. He'll listen to me. In fact, I'm not even going to wait around. I'm going to go out and I'm going to wait for his answer. You know, we could be critical of Habakkuk here. But how many times do we debate with God? How many times do we ignore his prodding? Or worse yet, not, even, not ever even consult him on our decision making because we know deep down in our heart we're not going to like his plan. In fact, I think mine is probably going to be better. Habakkuk leaves God to await his answer. And in chapter 2, God does answer. Look at Verse 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There are some important insights that God gives Habakkuk here. Number one, and we can learn from it, God's timing is rarely in line with our timing. Let me say that again. God's timing is rarely in line with our timing. You know, we only think we know when God should act, but that is based on our limited knowledge, isn't it? In God's omniscience, 
or being all-knowing. He knows the intentions of people's hearts. His grace and mercy goes way beyond ours. Aren't you glad He had mercy on you? Aren't you glad He gave grace to you? He is far more patient and long-suffering than we are. Aren't you glad He waited on you? Amen? He even gives wicked people opportunities to turn and repent from their unrighteousness and their wickedness. Number two, God sees the beginning to the end. We sang about it this morning. The choir did. The alpha and omega, the beginning and end. We, however, can only see what has happened before us and the here and now. God had no beginning. God will have no end. God sees the whole picture. God knows how it all ends for mankind. God will accomplish His will. We have to have faith that God is sovereign and will make everything right and that He will ultimately prevail for His glory. The only one who is truly deserving of any glory whatsoever. Amen? And even though it seems like everything is going wrong and falling down around us, it says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Folks, this is hard. It is hard to live by faith. It was even hard for Jesus to live by faith at times. I want you to hold your place here and turn back to the book of Matthew, just a few books back toward the New Testament. Matthew chapter 26. I want to remind you of a scene that you're uh, very mindful of. But I want to read it again. Beginning in verse 36, Jesus prays in the garden of Gethsemane. That word means the oil press. The olive press. It says here in verse 36, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into our hands, of, into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And we know the rest of the story. Some preachers will try to explain it away. They want to tell us that Jesus wasn't really agonizing over going to the cross. But the godly part of Jesus could see into the future. He knew what was about to happen. He knew that this cup, which is to bear the sins of the world upon His shoulders, was about to be placed on Him. He knew that His Father was going to have to look away. 
And he knew that he would suffer and he would die. And his human side says, if there is any other way, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In Luke's account, if you were to look in chapter 22, we see that he agonizes to the point that Jesus experiences a medical condition called hematidrosis, which is when the capillaries that, that feed the sweat glands burst under conditions of extreme emotional stress, you can actually bleed out of your sweat glands. Jesus had that kind of emotional stress. But in each prayer, Jesus ends by saying this, not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done, God. So looking back at Habakkuk in the rest of chapter 2, God explains how he will eventually judge the Babylonians. He lists five woes against them. I challenge you to go read those. In verse 6, it's woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbor to drink and get drunk drunk in order to shame him. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. In each of these woes, God is saying to Habakkuk, it may seem like I'm overlooking or even missing what is going on, but I am not. God goes on in each of those woes and reveals the judgment that they will face, the Babylonians will eventually face as a result. It was many years later. We know in history that the Medes and the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians. But God reassures Habakkuk that he hasn't missed a thing. Justice may come slow, but be assured, it will come. It will come. And in chapter 3 is Habakkuk's prayer in response. And I want to sum it up with just a few verses. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. It says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your works O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. As bad as the Babylonians were, you see, Habakkuk knew the Babylonians. He knew how bad they were. As much as Habakkuk would love to see God avenge Judah, he pleads for God that even in the judgment of the Babylonians, he says, God, remember your mercy. You see, in the next 14 verses, Habakkuk goes on to describe the terror of the Lord. Babylonians are tough, but they pale in comparison to the judgment of a holy God. And we hear this repeated by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, that says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And listen to how Habakkuk closes the book in verse 17. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit 
beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how poor I am in the world's standards, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Amen? I don't know if you have been following the story in the news lately about the murder of Amanda Blackburn. She is the wife of the Indiana pastor, Davy Blackburn. It has been uncovered that three men were actually involved in her murder and their main motive was robbery. I watched his interview on Fox News before they found these three men and he made this statement. He said, the most important thing about Amanda is that she absolutely loved Jesus Christ, he said. Blackburn said his wife had a unique knack of seeing the good in everything, from uplifting those around her to making a business out of restoring abandoned furniture. She would say, just trust me, give me time, and I'll make it into something beautiful. I love the fact that that now she is in heaven with Jesus. She sees that end result, Blackburn said. You know, it was interesting to hear the reporters after this interview. It was uncommon to them. They were critical and skeptical of the man's innocence. To think how this man could actually say uh, say these things after his wife was murdered and the child that she was carrying also died. It was also reported later that Davy had forgiven his wife's murderer. How could this man love the fact that his wife was now with Jesus and not with him. This is a man that is obviously said in his heart, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how poor I am, no matter the loss in my life, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What is stealing your joy this morning? Is it the injustice you see around the world? It doesn't take long to do that, does it? Is it a situation in your life that seems totally unfair? Is it that nagging why question that you continually ask God, but a solid answer that makes sense of it all never really comes back? Why do we light this candle this morning? It represents what? Is it a hope so? I hope God comes back? No. It is a hope that it happens today. It's going to happen. You know what? I hope it's today. To leave this place to be with our Holy Savior. That's the anticipation and the hope we have as believers. Are you anticipating the return of the Savior? That ought to give us joy. Maybe it's this morning that you need to say to God, God, no matter how bad it gets, no no matter how poor I am, I will take joy in you, the God of my salvation. Jonathan's going to come and lead us into him. It's him 705. 
I want you to listen to the lyrics, too, of this word, of this, of this song. As we sang it in first service, I was like, wow. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for putting that together. We didn't discuss this. But to sing these words in the hope of our Savior. What is it that God wants to do in you today?